Welcome to the Real Clear Defense Podcast Hot Wash. I'm John Sorensen, and I'm joined by RCD contributor John Waters. John, good to have you here today. Thanks, John. Good to be here. Today, we are speaking with Stephanie Savell, the co-director of the Costs of War Project at the Watson Institute for International Relations at Brown University. Savell is an anthropologist who researches militarism, security, and civic engagement in relation to the United States post-9-11 wars. Stephanie, so glad to have you here today. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So uh, we were talking a little bit before the recording, and just to frame the discussion, we have all sorts of different perspectives here on Real Clear Defense, and what we, or at least, you know, I'll let let John Waters talk for himself. I think what's what's really interesting to me about the Cost of War Project is uh, it's interdisciplinary, it's uh, you know, multi perspective. It's, it's all these different vectors to try and wrap our 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 arms around what is an, an incredibly sprawling topic and that has impacts in so many different ways, both human and social and different geographically. I mean, even just budgetarily, it's notoriously difficult to say what is defense spending. It's, it's really open to debate and you have to define your terms. Uh, so tell us really just, just briefly, give us the, 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 the quick version of what is the Cost of War Project and what are you hoping to accomplish with it? Yeah, I think you've done a great summary so far. We were founded in 2011 by my co-directors, Catherine Lutz and Nita Crawford, who are two longtime scholars of war. And the goal was really to get, uh, you know, get under-acknowledged information into the public conversation in this country to allow Americans to think more critically. And, and by thinking critically, I mean not critiquing necessarily, but just asking big picture questions about U.S. foreign policy and U.S. war. Um, You know, thinking like, what are the true consequences of these wars? Why are we engaged in these wars? If we could be doing something different, what, what would that look like? And what should we be doing instead? And how do we truly promote really meaningful security and safety for Americans and for others around the world. Um, so we we publish research, we put it on a, on our website, and we do a lot of outreach to the media. Um, we do educational work on Capitol Hill. We work. Uh, we we get our research into the hands of civil society groups, including lots of veterans groups across the political spectrum, um, to kind of give people tools to talk about these issues, to debate these issues, to get this information into the public sphere and and not allow it to continue to be a kind of distanced topic, which I think it so often is in, in the U.S. We kind of sideline the, the fact that the U.S. is at war at all. Um, so, so, you know, if you're not in actively in a service member or in the veteran community, I think a lot of people just, this isn't on their radar screen at all. Um, so we, we really try to work against that and kind of change this cultural tendency to kind of ignore ignore the U.S. role in the world. Yeah, let's pick up that discussion with Afghanistan, where you've done a lot of research at cost of war. The military thinker says that America had two aims in Afghanistan. One was to overthrow the Taliban regime. And two was to establish a new and modern military and government amenable to Western values. We failed on both counts. Stephanie, just how badly 
did we fail? You know, when I think about that question, John, what comes to mind is a paper that I've been immersed in recently on what, what public health experts call indirect death. So this is the way that wars have reverberating effects. They don't just kill people by actively through bombs and bullets and fire and the the combat, right? There's, there are all the ways that war affects, um, you know, infrastructure and food security and, you know, creates economic collapse. And so um, I've been trying to kind of wrap my head around and have a a paper that that we can um, publish on, you know, what are the indirect death effects in Afghanistan and and a few other of these top post 9-11 war locations. Um, And it's just, I mean, you start digging into this stuff. And I can't even tell you, I'm a mom, I have two young children. And you start realizing that this is affecting kids under five, most of all, they're dying in the greatest numbers now of malnutrition. Of I mean, it's it's poverty, and and um, the the indicators are crazy. So that poverty was high in Afghanistan before the UN the US went in, and it's much higher. It's something like over ninety percent of Afghan households are food insecure. Um, the uh, the you know over fifty percent of children are in the wasting category, which means that they're they're suffering from acute malnutrition. Wasting is literally wasting away to skin and bone. Um, so you start understanding the implications of the U.S. led war when you start looking at it in those terms. You can't even begin to describe the enormity of the costs. Of, of U.S., you know, of the, the U.S. actions for Afghan people. And, and you know, and not to mention, right, the, 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 these kinds of reverberating effects um, for U.S. U.S. service members and veterans and contractors, um, the, you know, suicide rates in the veteran community are just kind of sky high right now. So these kinds of the, the mental trauma um, that I'm talking about affects, you know, U.S., veterans and Afghans. Um, there's also environmental effects like, um, you know, we, we've heard a lot about burn pits recently in the, uh, in the U.S. news. And there's been a big debate about that in Congress. And that's really, I think the, the VA has started acknowledging that it's, um, that that is a deep issue and that that's affecting veterans in a really deep way. Um, and, uh, and that goes true for the people who live in the war zones as well. So um, you, when you start looking at the bigger picture, uh, I think the, the ramifications um, become clearer. Some of your recent statistics at costs of war, you say the percent of Afghans facing food insecurity before the war, 62%, after the war, 92%. That's right. The percent of children under five experiencing acute malnutrition before the war, 9%, after the war, 50%. Militarily, we think about the whole war as a failure, and maybe those who those of us who participated have to come to terms with losing, what it means to have lost and have failed the mission. But we also left the country much worse off. That's part of the point of these studies, isn't it? 
Yes, absolutely. The the country is much worse off than it was before the war. And so as much as we taught, we heard about women's rights and providing development and humanitarian aid, all of that has crumbled too, and, and much worse so, right? So it, it's, you know, of course, the Taliban has an important role to play in these dismal standard of living statistics, right? That they're, 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 um, they're, it's not helping that their, uh, their economic policies and their, you know, clamping down on women's rights and all this stuff has horrible consequences. So it's not like I'm saying that the U.S. is solely to blame. It's just that when you look at the bigger picture of U.S. war, like you have to kind of think about these things too. And, and, you know, on the level of, of strategy, um, I think it's important to talk about too how um, there are more Islamist militant groups today than there were on 9-11 globally. Um, So it's not just the Taliban having control of Afghanistan again, it's all over the world that this this militant movement is on the rise. I've been doing more research myself on um, Burkina Faso and the Sahel, and there's just a really growing Islamist militant movement there um, that, you know, it, you can trace back to some of, um, some of the U.S. responses to 9-11 in terms of this kind of strategy of preemption, right? The idea of going into a place to root out terrorism or prevent terrorism before it emerges. Um, And I think there's something about that logic that's really flawed because it doesn't account for the fact that when you, when you, when you um, use violence as a government or you, you're, you're helping other governments kind of build up their combat capacity in some of these really poor places, um, you are, uh, you're setting yourself up for blowback and for people to retaliate and for people to join militant movements because they're so frustrated that not only is their government not addressing poverty, but it's also cracking down on certain communities with violence. Um, and those communities often happen to be Muslim and Black and poor. And so I'm already curious about you. Uh, John mentioned interdisciplinary being uh important to the study at costs of war. You've talked about strategy. You've touched on the growth of Islamist movements. You're talking regionally about the Sahel in Africa. You're talking historically about the last 20 years of war, economically about the costs, sociologically, politically, those costs as well. To borrow a phrase from uh, Admiral James Stockdale, Stephanie, who are you and why are you here? <laughs> I'm an anthropologist. My expertise is in you know ethnographic qualitative research, going in and talking to people and hanging out with people and finding things out that way. Um, and uh, I am an editor, though. I've been an editor of Cost of War papers since 2017 when I became co-director. And so I have a bird's eye view of across the disciplines, um, all of these different kinds of research. And it's been, you know, one of the things that we do at Cost of War is kind of translate. So there's obviously a whole bunch of academic work that's done on these topics. And we, I see us as building a bridge from a lot of the academic conversations that happen uh, amongst scholars to the public. And so in order to do that, we've had to become well-versed in kind of translating a lot of different kinds of scholarly 
concepts from across different disciplines and turning it into something that resonates with a broader spectrum of the public. And so we'll dive into those details, but you said a bird's eye view. And so let me hold that thought for a second. Do you believe, since war is the focus, do you believe war is a racket? As Major General Smedley Butler wrote in 1935, Uh, for all you history buffs out there, Smedley Butler was one of 19 men to have been awarded two medals of honor in his lifetime. He died as the most decorated Marine in history at that time. Stephanie, do you believe war is a racket? Well, I love how you're um, waxing philosophical here. Um, you're hitting on, I mean, that's this is a, obviously a huge <laughs> question and scholars and philosophers have been debating for a long, long time. I will say two things. One, um, one, as an anthropologist, I think it's we we commonly think that war is inevitable and that all societies wage wars. This is just how humans deal with difference, and there's no alternative. Um, but if you look historically and across many different cultures you see so many examples of societies that have alternative means to war, to dealing with conflict. So that's an important framing. Um, And the other thing, much more contemporary and pragmatically speaking, is we've had some really important research on the military industrial complex and the ways that the defense contracting industry is very bound up with politics in this country. I'm sure you all have touched on this on your podcast before, probably, but um, the, the, there are more lobbyists from the contract in the contracting industry than there are members of Congress. There are over 700 lobbyists per year in the last five years. There's 535 members of Congress. Um, so there's just an enormous amount of money and effort and influence there. But there's also a lot of the ways that historically speaking, like since the end of the Cold War, the United States has been set up to, um, to kind of re-entrench an understanding that jobs are created through investing in the military and that if you you need to invest in the military in order to create jobs and and partly that's been an intentional strategy on the on the part of defense contractors in the wake of the cold war when budgets were cut to keep earning profits right. by establishing operations in many, many states and congressional districts across the country. Um, and so and so, really tying that across the political spectrum, politicians support the idea that investing in the military supports jobs. And we've so, so there's that kind of the aspect of the military industrial complex and the ways that that's really entrenched in our economy and our politics. Um, and then there's kind of cultural beliefs that go along with that, you know, and that's a different, that's, that's something also that, that need to be addressed. So we've had research that shows actually per dollar spent, if you spend the same amount of money in the sector, you know, a sector like education or healthcare, you're going to create far more jobs per dollar hmm. spent. Um, than than in the military, especially now with all the technological evolutions and the ways that, um, that, you know, that there are, that the, the job profile within the military is changing as well. 
The Cold War is important to this discussion, and you show in some of your work that defense spending boomed during the Cold War. It surged again after 9-11, and then I think again in or around 2014. And your data also shows that defense spending has never moved in tandem with inflation, by the way, for all those analysts out there arguing that inflation is a national security issue That's right. and should be factored into budget numbers. So I think I know the answer, but when defense spending grows, key bono, who benefits? I mean, who benefits? Over 50% of defense spending goes to defense contracting companies. And here I'm talking about the major contractors like Lockheed Martin and Boeing. Um, their, you know, their CEOs are making hundreds of millions of dollars a year. Um, and the post 9-11 wars have generated something like $14 trillion. Pentagon spending has totaled over $14 trillion since the start of the war in Afghanistan. One third to one half of that total has gone to defense contractors. So that is, you know, it's just an astronomical profit that these companies are making. And they're some of the only companies that haven't been affected by recent economic downturns um, because, again, of these cultural beliefs, really, that Congress people um, kind of stick to as well as the public around this is what the economy needs right now. You know, that we have to we have to kind of keep pouring even more money at the Pentagon than what the president asks for every year. Um, instead of thinking critically about, well, actually, what would create the most jobs? And can we get away from this kind of canon of thinking that sees this as the only uh, as like the only and the best job creator in hard times for this country? And it's a surprising statistic you raise. I think by 2019, the ratio of contractors to troops had grown to one and a half to one, or 50% more contractors than troops in the CENTCOM AOR that includes Iraq and Afghanistan. And, you know, I think back on a personal level to working with private contractors, many, most of them proficient. But it was always a concern for some in uniform to think that a private contractor would sit next to, say, a Marine Lance Corporal and do essentially the same job, but make 10 or 20 times more money than the Lance Corporal. And what does that say about our military, do you think? Well, it's one way that this country hides the human costs of war, because if 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 greater numbers of troops were dying, then the public would be more would be paying far more attention to what was going on. So you you know you outsource the labor to these contractors who don't have the same reporting requirements, and that you know the, 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 there's been as many contractors who have died in Afghanistan as U.S. service members. Um, more, in both more cases. actually, right, more. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Right, about eight thousand versus um, a little over seven thousand. Um, so, so that is a is a clear way that you know that the the human costs of war are kind of hidden from the American public. Um, and one thing that we talk about too is, you know, what would it look like if this country actually had um, a system to help low income people get good jobs like like what if we actually had an economy that would 
function in a way that the military wasn't the only kind of um, program in which you could kind of see, like come from a low income background and see some kind of level of job stability and career advancement. Because I think, I think a lot of people go into the military for that reason, you know, so what would it look like to live in a place where um, that wasn't necessarily the case? I mean, I think, I think that's important to talk about too. Well, uh, let's talk about how the burden is carried, the burden of service, both in terms of contractors and in terms of active duty, how the burden of service is carried disproportionately geographically, culturally, by income. You've done some reports you know, reflecting what the states with the biggest contributions to active duty service members are. Talk a little bit about that, and because I'm interested in how that plays into our current politics. One of the interesting shifts in the Republican Party uh, since uh, President Trump has been a return to a kind of populism. And, uh, you know, certainly I don't think uh, Trump is anti-war per se, but he certainly was reflecting a a kind of populist um, reaction against these adventures overseas. Yeah, I love that you're bringing this up because I I think this is just such people do not talk about this enough but there is there's something called a casualty gap right so certain communities not even states but communities in this country have suffered far higher deaths of service members in war than others um and here we're talking about you know this is not these are not the more elite parts of the country on the east and west coasts these are these are states and communities that are in the South. Um, and, and, uh, I'm looking in particular at, um, South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida, um, where the like per capita number of service members who go to war is, is among the greatest in the nation. Um, so I've produced a map where you can kind of see it's color-coded and you can see which states are sending the most troops to war. And I think you do, there is a sense from the communities who, who really bear the burden of that sending that those people to war, um, you see. And, and, and currently those states tend to skew. I mean, if you look at that map, you're, you're seeing states that tend to skew red. Yeah. And you can totally, I mean, I think you can, the implication of the research is exactly what you're saying is you can see how that sense of injustice at like we're the ones risking risking our lives and we're the ones going to war for this country. No one is acknowledging this. You know, you, you can see how that would really play into populist sentiment for sure. And and I think it's it's important to raise the issue of race there too. Um, because, you know, I think there's a lot of 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 um a growing number of troops who are coming from really disadvantaged communities white and black and a growing number of communities of color who are joining the military uh, as a, you know, as, as part of this, what, what I was talking about, the kind of this jobs creation program that this country has. Um, and, and so the, the impact is on those communities of color as well. But how would you talk about that anthropologically? Because it's not, you might make an assumption from that, that, oh, these, these communities are, increasingly pro-peace movement or aligning themselves with peace movements or or are becoming progressive in some case. That's obviously not the case, you know, that there's this kind of populism 
is associated, you know, it, the Venn diagram with the Second Amendment group, uh, you know, supporters is very strong. The, you know, uh, the forever wars, you know, the wars since 9-11 have seen a kind of fetishization of special forces gear and tactical shorts. And, you know, this kind of there's a whole uh, kind of culture that is that is militaristic in mm-hmm. in, in a lot of its features. It's called um, tactical. 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 Yes. I, I continually get ads for tactical shorts on, on my social media feeds. And I, I'm, I'm confused by that. It's uh, but uh, <laughs> what exactly is a tactical short? Uh, so, you know, talk about that in terms of, you know, culturally, how do you parse those movements in, in, in what you're seeing? It's a great question. I, you know, I don't know completely the answer to that. There's a lot more research to be done, but what I can say is that um, people don't necessarily make the connections all the time between domestic policies and U.S. foreign policy. And there have been scholars who have shown that, you know, U.S. foreign policy has always been really intimately tied up with domestic policy, and so the effects that people poor people and people of color feel in this country in terms of inequality are tied up with the ways that the U.S. is engaged in foreign policy abroad. Um, So just as one example, the post 9-11 wars, it's not that they created police militarization in this country, but they really intensified the the trend towards police militarization. So huge numbers more of um, military uh, vehicles and weapons going to police departments after 9-11. Similarly with surveillance technology um, and lots of kind of, you know, best practices going back and forth between the military and the police. So um, so part of the, the effects of police militarization um, that is felt most strongly in black and brown communities is tied to this country's post 9-11 wars abroad. And I think those connections need to be made much more often. Um, that's another kind of cultural belief system that needs to be changed and, and people need to be made aware. Because I think once you, it, it's natural, like when, when I find out that something is personally relevant to my life, I'm much more likely to care and do something about it. And I think that's that's part of what I'm talking about here is just like people understanding that, oh, actually what the US is doing in Afghanistan really affects me, you know, and it impacts my life. And, and I think, it, you know, we try to make those connections. Um, this might seem like a little bit of a tangent, but it's it's actually really essential to, to one of our main findings as a project. Um, so I'm gonna talk about launch into the federal budget different switch switch gears for a sec there's a portion of our audience that just got very excited so so go ahead i'm not saying the whole audience but there's definitely a portion of our audience that got very excited we're we're all ears now yes go ahead okay um so basically every every dollar that this country spends on the military is tied up with every dollar that gets spent on everything else. Um, the Congress negotiates every year around the, dis- the federal discretionary budget. Uh, and so 
you know, the things that don't get debated are things like Medicare and Social Security. Like those are chunks of the budget. They're set. Discretionary budget, over 50% of the discretionary budget goes to the military, goes to Pentagon spending, um, defense spending, I should say. And uh, that means that if you look at it as a pie chart, it kind of squeezes out all the money that's left for any other kind of domestic program. So, so we, each individual, all three of us on this podcast and everyone else, is our, our lives are really impacted by this federal budget decision-making process. Um, and uh, we've shown that the post-9-11 wars since 2001 have cost an estimated $8 trillion. Now that includes $2.2 trillion in obligated costs for veterans care. So that's a projected future cost, like a reasonable estimate for the span of a, of a veteran's lifetime of the post-9-11 wars. Um, so one of the big arguments of the project is to kind of say, you know, we need to take a bigger view. We can't just take DOD, what's called OCO spending, um, the Overseas Contingency op Operations, which has been this fund for the post 9-11 wars over and above the regular defense budget. We have to kind of think about the fact that there is veterans care, there's interest on war borrowing, because these have been credit card wars, and a lot of it has been paid for paid for through borrowing and there's a lot of debt. Um, there's uh, homeland security prevention response to terrorism, so the, the kind of home front of the post 9-11 wars. Um, there's also uh, increases to the DOD base budget due to war that people don't take into consideration. So things like, um, you know, pay bonuses and equipment upgrades and things like that. So if you kind of look and take a broader view, you are going to get to this bigger number. And that's a huge number. I mean, we are, this country went into the red budgetarily after 9-11, and we are so far in the red now. And these wars have been a huge factor. Um, and, you know, so lest you think that this is kind of a radical argument, Pre President Biden uh, was using our number in his withdrawal, Afghanistan withdrawal speech. He said, researchers at Brown University have said this war in Afghanistan has cost $2 trillion. So he's actually using our number, not the Pentagon number, for how much these wars have cost. Um, so that I think, you know, that was a moment for us that was a real signal of kind of our credibility and legitimacy in producing these kinds of figures. Now, let me pause mid-discussion here. Um, Stephanie, you're not... You're not coming onto the show today with Americans for Prosperity or the Association of Local Area Small Businessmen Concerned About the National Debt, I take it. Why do you care to make these arguments, these debt arguments, at this moment in history? It's so, I think we should all just care a lot about how our country chooses to use its money. And every dollar that's spent in one way involves a choice. And it could be spent on something else. So whether you're for fiscal restraint and you'd rather that the government didn't spend it at all, or you're a liberal and you want the money to be spent on social welfare welfare programming, it doesn't actually really matter. We're, you know, it's really interesting that the progressives and the libertarians are very aligned 
on reducing Pentagon budget spending. So, so we get sometimes into a room with groups on complete opposite sides of the political spectrum. And what unites them is this sense that the government is overspending on the military, it, that it could do just as, you know, much better job even reining it in with a lot of a lot more oversight of, you know, all the waste, fraud and abuse. You, you, you know, there's so many ways that it could be cut without affecting anything. Um, and that if you think carefully about why the U.S. is engaged in these wars, and as you were saying at the beginning of this conversation, what are the goals and have we really accomplished them? And once you start answering those questions and kind of thinking about the budget in tandem with that, it just becomes so obvious that there are so many better things this country could be doing with its money. This gets precarious, though, in light of the war in Europe. Great Britain announced last month its intent to grow their military for the first time in three decades. National debt's up in Great Britain. Cost of living is up. Inflation is a problem. But their military spending will increase from $54 billion to $107 billion by 2030. France increased its 2023 defense budget by more than 7% to fund what it's calling a war economy. And of course, last summer, Germany announced a big special fund to modernize its military. Uh, is this threat inflation that's driving budget increases? Or is it a real threat that countries are responding to? So let me pick apart that question a little bit because you're talking about European defense budgets, which isn't the same as U.S. defense budgets. And that's a really important distinction. And there are those who are saying that the fact that the, that Europe is kind of increasing its defense capabilities right now in response to Russian aggression in Ukraine um, allows the U.S. to not have to. That basically this, like geographically, those countries are much closer to the front and um, and that there's no reason that the U.S. would need, would I mean, that, that actually what, what they're saying is that this might be good for peace and security in the long run to have Europe kind of step up and take, right. it's a, take it's on a, a greater it's, share. It's a, it's a NATO burden sharing argument and argument, you know, yeah. faced, faced with a, a hot war on in, in Europe, in Ukraine from Russia that they see the, the real need to step up their defense spending as a portion of GDP. Yep. And we just had a paper by a military strategy expert named Lyle Goldstein come out um, talking about the issue of threat inflation as well. He traces the history of threat inflation in regards to Russia within the United States back to the Cold War. Clearly, um, we, we all kind of have a vague sense of that. Um, and uh, with the Cuban Missile Crisis in particular. Um, and he basically says that uh, if the U.S. increases its conventional force posture in relation, you know, it, in relation to Russia, that not only are we engaging in threat inflation, but that this could have the same kinds of really dramatic and scary nuclear consequences that we saw in the Cuban Missile Crisis, and that basically he's saying like Putin is. Um, kind of in a position of conventional military weakness, relatively speaking, and that the nuclear 
weapons is, has been his big investment as a way of compensating for um, for this conventional military weakness. And so that that what that's what he's going to rely on when when kind of confronted with conventional mil- military force. Um, so the paper is, is basically making an argument that uh, stepping up U.S. defense budgets in response to the threat of Russia is not going to have it's not going to lead to more peace and security in the long run. Well, I think, it, you know, uh, certainly there's, again, members of our audience who would say there are real threats in the world. There are real bad actors and they don't just go away because we spend less money uh, preparing for possible use of violence in the future and and that the spending on that capacity may actually reduce their willingness to engage in violence. But I think that the conversation about what are those real costs and how do we calculate them is a really useful one. I you know I remember distinctly after 9/11 attending a, a thing at AEI and there was a panel and I, you know, one or two people, everybody on the panel was like, oh, this will be a cakewalk. It'll be quick. The war will pay for itself with with oil revenues. I mean, I, mean, I literally heard those words. And, uh, you know, like, ev- like every DOD procurement project ever, the cost on the back end is a lot bigger than the estimate on the front end. That's right. And that's absolutely this is something that my colleague who founded the Cost of War Project, Nita Crawford, she says this all the time. She said that, you know, she says there's this myth in American society that wars are going to be quick and cheap and efficient. Um, and they're none of those things. And so you you need to be aware going in that those are myths, that, that, that it's impossible for wars to be quick, cheap and efficient. Not going to happen. So, you know, whether they're engaged citizens or uh, people who are actively involved in this uh, constant battle over the numbers, what would be your, what would you say to people about how they should actively think realistically about what the price tag is of both the sustainment of our current military capacity, let alone deciding to engage in violence? It's just far too high. The costs are far too high. You, we need to think in a much bigger way about what security means for for Americans and for other people around the world. And if you're you're really talking about what like meaningful human safety and security, which means a you know a, a good freedom from want kind of a definition, right? Um, your you, you, the costs of the actual wars are, and the kind of constant state of war preparedness of this country is too high of a price to pay. It's it's ca- counterproductive. Let's take it back to veterans, war veterans, for a second, and see if you you can shed light on this question. One of the situations we encountered talking to combat veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan is a contradiction. They miss the experience of mission and comradeship of war. They also regret some of what they did during the war. They have inside themselves a young man or young woman inspired by pride or patriotism or maybe militant patriotism that was born out of the Cold War uh, to go to war. And then they have the adult who has learned the truths about war 
that it's longer, it costs more, it's dirtier, and that it can't be forgotten. Uh, we ask them sometimes, veterans who have become anti-war, it seems, we ask them, how do you reconcile the war drive you seem to regret with the blitheness of public support for war, most recently in the case of Ukraine? I wonder if that question resonates with you or if you have any light to shed. Oh, it's so well put. I think so many things. Um, We certainly saw that war fever that you're talking about in response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine and, and, you know, people so, so ready to kind of think about war as the only thing that America could do in that moment, you know, as opposed to thinking about other alternatives like diplomacy and and other ways that we could promote peace and security. Um, Absolutely. The situation calls for, you know, foreign intervention. You can't stand by and do nothing, uh, you know, but, but it, I think, we can't think of war as the only option. We can't think of of kind of beefing up Ukraine's weaponry as like the only way to promote la- lasting peace in the region. Um, and I, I, when you were speaking, I was also thinking a lot about, you know, as an anthropologist, I think the 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 language that we use to talk about um, like individual versus structural choices and responsibility for some of what we're talking about. I have met so many service members and veterans and so many people in the defense industry, you know, defense establishment um, who have the best of intentions and, you know, people who want the best thing for this country, they want the best thing for other people around the world. So what we're not, what we're talking about is not at all at the level of individual intentionality and the choices that individuals feel are making. We're talking, when we're talking about the cost of war, we're talking about a structural cost at the level of society. And these are structural issues that and injustices that I'm talking about that, you know, I think, the best thing that we can all do is be aware um, and that that really does inform our decision-making going forward to understand things at that systemic level. I think that's a great place to end the conversation for today. Uh, Stephanie Savelle, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. I hope to have you back on the podcast again. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate the conversation. Uh, check out the Cost of War project. Uh, is there is there a, a, a current paper or uh, item that you you'd like to direct people to that that you'd like to give a plug to? Yeah, I mean, I think this this uh, we have this infographic by the numbers Afghanistan before and after twenty twenty years of war. That's just a one pager that would be good for people to take a look at. That's right on our homepage, and it, you can get to our homepage uh, www.costs with an s costsofwar.org. Great. We'll put that in the show notes as well. Stephanie Savelle, thank you so much for speaking with us. Yeah, thank you. And thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. In the show notes, you can find a link to sign up to receive The Morning Recon, our daily newsletter summary of defense news. For John Waters and everyone here at Real Clear Defense, I'm John Sorensen.